All right, we're going to get right into this. Uh, The end of Mark chapter 11, and we are actually going to go into the beginning of Mark chapter 12. We're going to do the first 12 verses of that, though, uh, that as well, even though I didn't ask Joe to read it. Uh, We'll eventually get there because these two narratives are are connected. And I want to start us by asking this question this morning. I'm going to ask you a question about other people asking you questions. Have you ever been asked... Have you ever asked, I'm sorry, have you ever asked somebody a question, a really important question, and you want an answer, but you're not sure you really want a truthful answer? You're you're asking the question because you know you need to do your due diligence, and, and because you, you know that there are other possible answers to this question than the one that you're comfortable with, and so you answer, ask the question, but there's some trepidation there because really you don't want somebody to contradict your worldview. Rather, you want somebody to simply affirm your worldview, tell you what, what keeps you comfortable. You, you don't want to have to wrestle with the cognitive dissonance that occurs when somebody you respect and somebody whose opinion you value has a contrary understanding of truth than you do. You, you, you ask the question, but you really don't want the truth. Do you ever do that? I, uh, yeah, all of us do that. Why? Why is that? I, I would submit to you that the reason we do that is because asking an important question like that, where we're wrestling with truth, but we really don't want to know the truth, is because when we start to hear what might be the truth, it's going to start messing with the idols of our hearts. It's going to start to mess with things like our own self-assuredness, our own idea that we can kind of do things our way and be our own savior, if you want to put it into those kinds of terms. It, It messes with the idol in our life of pride, certainly. It, It messes with the idol of security, our self-assured security. It messes with our, our convenience, our feeling of comfort. It messes with our self-righteousness, too, our sense of self-righteousness. Those challenging truth questions mess with our idols, I think, and that's why we, we struggle with them. But the biggest idol I think it messes with is this one. And it's not mentioned out loud very often, but it's something that's seated deep in our deep in our wills and in our hearts, and that's that idea that we're really the ones in control, that we have some control over what's going on, and not just some control, but that we can really control things, that we can control our destiny, that we have ultimate authority, and so we don't like to hear the truth about some of those things because it makes us uncomfortable and it messes with that idea that we really are. In co- you know, to, here you go. To quote Jack, well, to paraphrase Jack Nicholson, we can't handle the truth. Very often we can't handle the truth. And these two narratives that we're going to look at, the one that Joe read and then the one that we're going to get to later, Mark 12, 1 through 12, that's what these narratives are about today. It's Jesus reminding us that we're not in control, even though we often think we are. Control and authority. Control and authority. Do we not struggle with both of those things mightily? Um, My mentor 
and good friend who's a, 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 one of the founding pastors of Redemption, Tom Schrader, uh, he likes to say this, everyone is a control freak. Some just hide it better than others. We all wrestle with this. Uh, there's a, a guy that some of you may remember uh, if you're Vintage is more like mine. Uh, back in the 80s and 90s, this guy named Warren Bennis was considered the leadership guru in America. He was writing all these books on leadership, and man, if you were doing something on leadership, you would always quote Warren Bennis. And, and in the early 90s, he wrote an, a really helpful book, and, and in that book he had a, on leadership, and in that book he had a chapter on what he called the doppelganger effect. Now, I've noticed since coming to Arcadia, to Redemption Arcadia, uh, three and a half years ago, I've noticed that we use that word doppelganger quite often, but what we mean by that is that somebody looks like another person. So somebody walked up to me like the second Sunday I was here and said, that, that, that woman over there is your wife's doppelganger. She looks just like you. Have you ever thought about that? So we, we talk about doppelganger, but that's not the way Bennis was using it. Bennis was using the doppelganger effect to talk about not somebody who is like you in looks, but somebody who is uh, like you in thought. And he said one of the biggest challenges that corporate CEOs and he had a big section where he talked about politicians especially fall into this trap is that they like to surround themselves with doppelgangers, but not doppelgangers of looks, but doppelgangers of thoughts. Doppelgangers of thought. So in other words, when they start to ask these questions, when they, when they start to create vision and, and develop strategy, what they do is they have a bunch of people around them who are going to think like them and kind of tell them what they want to hear and rarely push back. He, and, and he specifically cited Richard Nixon. He got into a little bit of trouble, didn't he? Jim Car Jimmy Carter. Uh, for those of you who are younger, these were former presidents of the United States. Um, and, and Ronald Reagan. Iran-Contra, he says the, the whole trouble that he got into with Iran-Contra was because nobody would tell him the truth about anything, because he had surrounded himself with, with doppelgangers. Do you ever stop and consider how often we do that with God? We try to make God our doppelganger. We, 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 we may search the scriptures. We may listen to sermons. We may go to our RC and hear the truth. But of course, partly because we're Americans, but mostly because of human nature, we like to pick and choose what we're comfortable with. And so we come to the scriptures and we pick and choose what we're comfortable with. We pick and choose what affirms our already established worldview about things instead of submitting ourselves to the truth of God because we would really rather be in control. The truth is we would really rather be in control. We want to be the ones who have authority. But if God is really God, and by definition that means that he's sovereign, and he has all authority, and that means that he is in control, if that's really true, what is that going to do to our worldview? I'll tell you what, I've thought about this a lot. I've read a lot of stuff on this recently as well, and, and, and I feel like there's really only two choices. And, and that's that we either resist it and rebel against it, or we, we humble ourselves and we submit to it. That's essentially the two choices that we're faced with. And those are challenging choices. I understand that. But one of the biggest challenges is that no matter how hard you and I try, we can never escape or skirt or avoid or ignore the authority question. We can't ignore it. 
And I would even say that, that when we enter into the public sphere and we hear all these conversations couched in the vernacular of love and tolerance and acceptance and heart, that that's our way of skirting the authority issue. That's our way of saying we don't want to submit to a truth that's maybe greater than our truth. But really, as life begins to play itself out, that provides shallow cover at best. It's always amazing to me, you read a, 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 you know, a great existential uh, agnostic 20th century philosopher like Bertrand Russell, and I'm going to reference him a couple times later, and, and you read him, and, and it sounds so good, but the reality is, is that if he lived exactly the way he sort of preached through his philosophical treatises, it's actually, you, can't even, you can't live the way he lives. It's impossible to live that way. The postmodern worldview, which I've spent the last 20 years looking at, doesn't mean I'm an expert, but every time I look at it, I look at it and go, that's internally inconsistent. You cannot live the perfect postmodern life. It eventually self-destructs. There is truth, and there is authority. And, and here's how Tim Keller says it. He says, it's either God or it's the universe. It's the cosmos. It's chance. It's randomness. It's, because it's not us. We're not in charge. We don't have authority. We're really not in control. So it's one or the other two. And he says, one cares, and one doesn't care. One loves, one isn't capable of loving. And I'll tell you, we have to wrestle with this every time. You know, in, right now we're in, we're in uh, uh, what is it, monsoon season here. I, I'm always interested how Arizonans love the monsoon season. One of the reasons is because it makes you feel really small, and it helps you understand that you're not in control of anything. Really bad storm comes, you're not in control of anything. Saxon's up here. How often are we just thrown off kilter when war breaks out? We, we look at that and say, why? Why? If people would just do this, if people would just be reasonable, if people would just, do whatever it is, why? Well, we're not in control. We're not in control. You cannot personify the cosmos. The, the cosmos has no mind, no will, and no heart. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. Here's the big idea for today's message. Jesus is the Son sent from the Father, and therefore he has all authority. And so in this passage that Joe just read, these seven verses, uh, Jesus is it's, it's Holy Week for, for the Jews, and there's a lot of action in the temple. It's Tuesday. It's the third day of that week, and it's very common, of course, to go to the temple, especially if you're a rabbi. And he's confronted there essentially by the Sanhedrin, the, 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 the people who are in charge of all the Jewish religious people. So the, the chief priests, the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they come to him, and they say, by what authority... And they're asking this question, you understand, because their authority, their power, and their sense of control is being challenged by Jesus. By what authority do you do these things? Well, what are these things? Well, it, in, in the most present context, certainly it's what Sean preached about last week. Jesus had gone in and had cleared the temple. That was, just, that, that was absolutely unheard of. But he went in there and cleared the temple, so they're upset about that. But, but it's more than just that. They, they've been watching his three-year career in the ministry, if you want to call it that. 
And, and they're also upset. These things also can refer to the fact that he is claiming that he can forgive sins and that he can redefine what the Sabbath means and that, and that he can take the oral traditions of the elders and turn them on their side. By what authority do you, what right do you have, Rabbi Jesus, to do this? And this is, this is really serious stuff. The rule of the professional religious people in their day and later recorded in the Mishnah, which is their official book of commentary for religious purposes, is that no one possessed the authority to do what Jesus did unless that authority explicitly and clearly came from God. And if you did things under the authority that was not from God, if you did these things that Jesus was doing under an authority that was not from God, you could be executed for it. You could be executed for it. It's a hard situation. And here's what's funny about this situation. I'm in the preaching collective a couple weeks ago, and all the pastors are there, and everybody had this same sense about this. Um, Jesus had been confronting all of these issues and problems out in Galilee and, and, and in all of these surrounding areas for three years, and now he's in the temple. He's in the most difficult place to be able to do this sort of thing. And what does he do? Does he shrink back? Does he melt away? Does he, does he sort of take the, his foot off the gas a little bit? Does he, does he sort of, does he, does he soften his stance and soften his presentation? Does he, does he compromise at all on anything? No, if anything, he presses down harder on the gas. One guy, Luke, who used to play college baseball, he compared it this way. He said, it's kind of like Jesus was in AAA when he was out there. Now he's in the show. Now he's in the major leagues. And, and, and rather than shrinking back, he's bringing his A game. Not that his game wasn't good out there, but he's, he's really going to town now, now that he's in this situation. But then you look at this and you go, but, he, but Jesus didn't answer the question. Why didn't he answer the question? Well, it's not that he's afraid. Listen, Jesus already knows he's going to the cross. He's mentioned that three times already. He knows he's going to the cross. There's, there's nothing he gains by trying to skirt the issue. He also knows, by the way, here's where this really connects with us when we ask people to speak truth into our lives and we really don't want them to speak truth. He also knows that the Sanhedrin already knows the truth about him because they've seen his authority. They've seen him heal Sick people, miraculously. They've seen him feed all of these people. They've seen all of this stuff. They know he has authority and power. In fact, it's the very reason they don't want him around. Why would they be worried about Jesus if he didn't have power, if he didn't have authority? Why would they be worried about him? They would, if that were the case, they know that he would just eventually flame out and they could just leave him alone. The fact that they keep coming at him shows that they are worried about his power and authority because his power and authority is very real. And so Jesus comes and answers their question with another question, which, by the way, is, an, is a common rabbinical way of engaging in debate. He's just doing what, what was very common then. And, and frankly, rather than trying to explain it myself, I, I read James Edwards' commentary on this, and I'm going to quote him because he explains it better than I could. This is magnificent. Here, here's, here's what Edwards says. The question about John the Baptist seems at first glance to be either irrelevant or evasive. What does John's baptism have to do with Jesus' authority? Ironically, Jesus' counter-question contains the seeds of the truth 
the Sanhedrin asks about, for it was at the baptism by John that the heavens were parted, the spirit of power descended into Jesus, and the voice from heaven declared him God's son. The baptism of Jesus, in other words, was the event that inaugurated his authority, his conscious oneness with the Father, and his sovereign freedom and empowerment to do ministry. If the Sanhedrin wants to know whence Jesus received authority to do these things, it must reconsider John's baptism. A decision about John is a decision about Jesus. If John's baptism were solely from men, then the Sanhedrin may be justified in its accusation of Jesus. But if John's baptism was from heaven, that is, of God, as most in the temple believed, then Jesus' authority exceeds mere human authority and must then be by the authority of God. And the Sanhedrin responds in a way that shows that they knew they were had, but they would never admit it. In other words, truth was spoken to the Sanhedrin, but they rejected it out of hand. They considered their options, and they come to Jesus, and they said, well, we don't really know. Like heck, they didn't know. It's not that they didn't know. It's that they were unwilling to know. And so truth is sacrificed for pragmatism, popularity, and position. This, this should connect with us today. Truth is sacrificed for pragmatism, popularity, and position. We live in an ethos right now, in a world, in a culture, in a public sphere, where that is not the exception, but that is the rule. That is the rule that we live under. Uh, Paul has something to say about this. You don't have to turn there. We'll have it up on the screen. But I, I want to just mention this. So Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and in chapter 1, verses 18 through 22, he writes this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his internal, eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Paul says, we suppress the truth. Let me ask you something. Can you suppress something that you don't already have? This is something we have. This is something we actually know. And yet we suppress it. A, a few weeks ago when Massey was preaching, I love the illustration he gave of this very verse here. He said, you're at the beach and you've got this big old beach ball and you go out into the water and you're trying to push the beach ball under the water and completely submerge it. Truth, we try to suppress truth, like, but truth has this way. It just keeps popping up and messing up our day, essentially. Paul says we, we're trying to suppress the truth, but, but we can't. And so we're not honest with ourselves. And if you're not honest with yourself, it's really hard to be honest about Jesus. And this is what the Sanhedrin was dealing with. And maybe, maybe we deal with that too. Alan Cole writes this. The priests, scribes, and elders opt for keeping an open mind, as we say today. 
In reality, they merely shuffle along the options of skepticism, unbelief, and cowardice, for ascending to the truth would be too courageous and uncomfortable. And so this confrontation that takes place here then sets the stage for these next 12 verses, Mark 12, 1 through 12. So if you could turn there, because we're going to read those in a minute. And, and, and I will just say this again. I, I mention this a lot. One of the challenges I find with the fact that um, years ago in the Bible, we decided to put in verse and chapter divisions, which I think are very helpful. It's like an address, so you can find things in the Bible very quickly. But there's also a downside to it. We see uh, verse and chapter divisions, and we begin to think that one thing might not have anything to do with the other. And especially when a chapter division comes in, let me tell you, this next tw- these next 12 verses, the parable of the tenants, have everything to do with what just happened with the Sanhedrin. He tells this parable specifically to let the Sanhedrin know they got some trouble coming. Here's what he writes, or he says. This is what Mark writes. And he, Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, uh, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants who were in another country. When the season came, he, went, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And the tenants took this servant and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he came to them, uh, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And they sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others. Some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son, Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? And then he quotes Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they, the Sanhedrin, were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that, they, that he had told the parable against them. Good perception, guys. So they left him and went away. Now, this is maybe helpful to know. This storyline of what's known as the absentee landlord for, for a vineyard or a place of harvest is a common cultural narrative. It was a very common thing in the first century Mediterranean life. This was one of the ways that business operated back then. So Jesus is not pulling in some weird story from left field that nobody would be able to identify with or understand. Again, he's using the normal cultural ethos in order to teach people about human nature, God, and the disposition of evil. So he's very relevant. And here's the first parallel that we need to see about this this, this parable. This is really important. The tenants come to the landlord and they are in need. If you were going to be a tenant of a vineyard, you were somebody who was in need. You were looking for a job. You were looking for livelihood. So they come and they're in need. And so you come and you beseech the landlord. You say, I need help. I, I need you to bless me. To select me and and to get selected as the tenant was a big deal. It's not like the landlord was going, man, I hope I can find a tenant for my land. It's so hard to find help. It's so hard to find a tenant. No, the tenants were lining up. 
It's, it's like applying to graduate school or, 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 trying to, or trying to find an apartment in New York City or in San Francisco. It's hard to do. You, you, you hope that you get selected. And, and not only that, but they weren't looking for just raw land where they had to bring seed and bring all the resources. They were looking for a place that was already resourced, as this story shows. They were looking for somebody who already had a crop they just needed the crop. To, this guy built, the, he, he had the crop, he had the tower, he had a fence, he had, this was a turnkey operation. And, and they came and they said, yeah, we like that. And so then they assure the landlord about what wonderful tenants they'll be and they'll, share, they'll pay their rent and they'll share the crop. And remember, this is the landlord's crop. This is the landlord's land. This is the landlord's resources. This is the landlord's blessing. But the minute... The tenants feel that the landlord isn't looking, that he's out of the way, that he's too stupid to know what's going on. They take what is the landlord's and they appropriate it to themselves. The minute the gracious landlord is gone, it's no longer about the landlord, but it's about the tenants. The tenants take the landlord's glory and they bestow it upon themselves. And the expected fruitfulness of this vineyard is never manifested except for the benefit of these tenants. This fruit was also to be a blessing for the landlord and for others. This is exactly what Israel had been doing to God for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, primarily by their religious leaders. And by the way, it's exactly what you and I are prone to do in our relationship with God. It is. Search your hearts. Think about this. God blesses us in so many ways. He gives us so much. Most of the time, I'm even speaking autobiographically, most of the time we take what he gives us and then we take credit for it as well. The proclivity of human nature to take what is God's, his creation, his grace, his compassion, his wisdom, his fruitfulness, his blessings, and even take his judgment, his judgment, and make it about us is absolutely undeniable. It's the great quote from Martin Luther from 500 years ago. God created man in his image, and man has been returning the favor ever since. We doppelganger God. That's what we do. The constant refrain of the Old Testament book of Judges, which is more than a thousand years before this happened, is what? The constant refrain of Judges is what? In those days, there was no king, in other words, no present authority, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Uh, you know how we say that today? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You know how we say that today? We say, I'm just going to be true to myself. The key to life is just to be true to myself. Tim Keller says this, What is the history of Israel if not rebellion against God? What is the sum total of human history if not the attempt to rid the universe of God? We're the tenants. By the way, especially me, because I'm a professional religious person. So who are the players? Well, the vineyard is Israel. That's God's people. The tenants are the professional religious people. The supposed shepherds of God's people. How do the shepherds of God's people take what's God's and make it about them? 
The servants sent for the rent and the portion of the, of, the, of the crop are the true prophets of Israel who were rejected over and over by the shepherds of Israel and even by many of the kings of Israel. The crop was the fruit that Israel was supposed to bless the nations with and bless God with. Remember Sean's message last week? The whole point of the nation of Israel was that by their fruit, they were going to bless the nations of the world. So that's the fruit of this vineyard. The landlord is God, and the beloved son, who is that? It's not Peter. It's Jesus. So, so here's the pattern. God calls and equips people. People come to God and they beseech God for favor and God gives it. But sooner or later, for many of us, human nature just takes over. It has to be about us, not God. That's just that pride that just seeps in constantly. And I'll just, I will, let's just talk about me for a minute, okay? I'm a minister. I'm a pastor. I am a shepherd. All of those things are supposed to apply to me. I know there are others as well. But we're talking about these three right now. God has called me. God equipped me originally, but he wasn't done equipping me. He's been equipping me ever since. He, he equips me every day. And, and you know what? I even get paid for this. But I will tell you that when I'm really honest with myself, to try to discern between whether I'm ministering to somebody, truly ministering to somebody, or whether I'm actually manipulating them, that's actually kind of a hard thing to discern, for real. Do I really, as a minister, I say that the results are up to God, but do I really leave the results up to God? Or am I just trying to tweak and twist a little bit because I think I maybe have a better plan than God? Am I being fruitful for my sake? Or am I being fruitful for God's sake and for the sake of others? Those are legitimate questions that are brought about by this parable here. And you might say, well, why is this so hard to discern? I'll tell you why. It, it tells us right in Scripture, Jeremiah 17, our hearts are wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can understand them? Again, I, I reference Tom Schrader. I've learned a lot from him. About... I don't know, 20 years ago he was teaching and I heard him say this. At every moment in every relationship, we are either ministering to the person we're with or we're manipulating them. At every moment. No neutral time. We're either ministering or manipulating. And that's not just in the context of the church. That's everywhere. And we wrestle with this because we know the truth of it, but it makes us very uncomfortable. And because of the sin in our hearts, it's often difficult to actually discern the difference. So, I heard him teach this, and I was wrestling with it, and literally six months later, I was still resisting the truth of this, saying, that's not true, come on, I'm a better person than that, Tom. And I'm out in the backyard, this is years ago, I'm out in the backyard, I'm doing yard work, and about two weeks prior to that, I had bought a package at Target of, of blank inside cards, you know, you know greeting cards where you write your own little note in there, okay? And I'd bought a package of these, and I, I sent out like 24 of these cards to various people, encouraging them, thanking them for different things, trying to bless them, trying to minister to them. So two weeks later, I'm in the backyard doing yard work, and, and, and I started to think, I sent out all these cards, and not one of these people, like, thanked me or said, hey, I appreciate the card, or... 
hey, y'all, what's going on there? What's going on there? Is this, is this about me? Or is this about God? Well, enough about me. Let's talk about you. Sean last week, <laughs> Sean last week finished his sermon with about 10 minutes on consumerism that I thought was brilliant, that I think all of us needed to hear. And so just let me ask you this question. How many of you come here on Sunday morning remembering this fact? The worship service is about worshiping God and not worshiping your preferences. You ever think about that? Ooh. Frank, that was fun when we were talking about how much you suck, but now... <laughs> Who is this really about? Every one of us needs to ask, what are we doing with our harvest? And who is our harvest about? This parable is directed right at the selfish, self-consuming, professional religious people of Jesus' day. And today, it is directed right at every one of us who claims to follow Jesus. God, by his authority and because of his love, he kept sending his prophets to Israel with their truth. And the leaders and the people kept re rejecting those prophets. And then he sent his son. Surely no one will reject his son. This parable is 2,000 years old, and it's just as fresh right, right now. So what does the owner of the vineyard, God, do? I mean, we have to deal with that, too. There's that little section there towards the end of the parable that is very uncomfortable. Well, there's judgment and destruction. And we need to remember, God loves us. He cares for us. He has great mercy, compassion, patience for us. But we also need to remember that because he's holy, those things cannot be finite when there is sin involved, and eventually sin must be judged. It has to be judged. And so God sends Jesus, and those who believe in Jesus will not suffer that judgment for their sin, that punishment for their sin. And, and this is a gesture of radical love on God's part. And this love that he has, that he sent his son, is actually born of his authority, the fact that he has authority to do that, ultimate authority. Jesus quotes Psalm 118 to remind us that the world can reject and rebel and, and, and mock and ignore God and, and, and ignore the church all at once. But God's plan and purpose will not be frustrated because he has all authority. Jesus says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. He has authority. And it's marvelous in our eyes. In other words, he says, this is really good news. This is the gospel. And I know this, this good news can be very challenging and hard teaching. I know that some of us right now, I, I, just, I have enough experience to know this is true, but I also have a quote from somebody else. I just know from experience, some people right now, you're really encouraged by this. Yes, Brother Frank, preach it. And others of you are really challenged by this. You, you're, you're bristling right now. And that's exactly as it should be. Hans Baer, who's a New Testament scholar, he says this, the parables of Jesus either instruct or harden the hearts of the hearers. It's true in Scripture, and it's even true today. Truth has a way of doing that. God's wisdom will always challenge our authority and this illusion that we are in control. And I want to come back and just talk a little bit about this as, as, as we kind of wrap this up. I mentioned this earlier. I hear this a lot, and I've been reading a lot of essays lately from both Christian and non-Christian voices on some of the things that are that are popular, some of the sayings that are popular in our culture, some of the sayings that we just, 
that we just uncritically accept as truth. And one of them is this idea that I just need to be true to myself. That's the key to fulfillment. That's the key to life. I'm just going to be true to myself. And it sounds good, but I guarantee you, if you do that, you're headed for trouble. Have you ever noticed how people who are true to themselves end up in a lot of collisions, in a lot of conflict, in a lot of frustration, in a lot of trouble with other people who are being true to themselves? So I have to ask you this question. you got to run out this ground ball. If two people who are just being true to themselves collide, who has the authority? You see, you can't escape this authority question. You can't escape it. As much as you try to run from it or just assert that, well, I'm the one who has authority, you can't run from this. So whose authority should we be true to? I would suggest that we should be true to God's authority, true to his truth. And it's something that we at Redemption try to do all the time. We, we want to challenge people to not just accept these pithy cultural, cultural axioms, but to think them through theologically, logically, carry them out to their logical conclusion, to really strive for intellectual honesty. Here's an example. Again, I've been reading a lot of these essays lately. You know, if you, um, if you work in a church where there's nine lead pastors who are really smart and they're sending you stuff that you need to read, and then if you're discerning on Twitter, you can find a lot of really good stuff to read. That's kind of the lazy man's way of finding stuff to read, Twitter and your colleagues. But here's an example one common way that people try to engage this truth and authority question today is they say, well, I trust science. I believe in science. I think science is going to answer all these questions for us. I think that science is going to fulfill us. Science will fix everything. And I will tell you, there's nothing wrong with science. I like science, okay? I'm not very good at it, but I like it. My oldest daughter, though, our oldest daughter, Shelby, she's a scientist. She loves it. Nothing wrong with science. I'm not afraid of it. It's compatible with God and his word. I would even say that God created science. You know, being a Bible-believing Christian and all. I saw a great quote this weekend from Dennis Miller. He, he, somebody asked him, well, so what is it you believe? And he says, I, I believe that someone created Charles Darwin. <laughs> so science. <laughs> but to place your faith and trust in it? Just because you want to skirt this authority? Here you go. Two names. Charles Darwin... And Bertrand Russell, Russell was uh, the, the 20th century exceptional, existential uh, atheist or agnostic, depending on your view, philosopher. If you were to conflate their view on the world, their worldview, it would sound something like this. The post-Christian scientific understanding of the universe is that it will devour you and everything you care about. The universe is blind and impersonal. It cares not. Any notion that the universe is a benevolent entity is pure fantasy. Evolution, quite violent and uncaring. The universe offers neither a reason or purpose to live a good moral life, nor the hope that things will turn out well in the end. Remember, these are non-Christian guys who are just admitting the fallacy in terms of any sort of eschatological hope. And admittedly, these discussions, really, what, what we're getting at is who has this, this question of authority. Who has authority? Where is truth found? And I would submit to you, this demonstrates that authority matters, that God really matters, that truth really matters. In the last 70 to 100 years, the fact is the dominant cultural and academic voices are saying with great certainty, and this is a quote from one of them, 
As far as we know, we are here by accident. There is no authority, and if there is truth, it is all contextually bound at best. So again, Bertrand Russell, confronted with the question, do humans matter? Do, is there a purpose or a good in life? He writes this, Man is the product of causes that had no prevision of what they were achieving. Therefore, all the labors of the ages are destined for extinction. Let me ask you something. Does that inspire hope in anybody? Do you find any reason or rationale for why we might want to respond in joy and gratitude to a benevolent God and, and, and live a life that's, that might honor him? No, instead, Russell writes this. He says, all of human life is built on a foundation of unyielding despair. That was Russell's world view, y'all. All of human life is built on a foundation of unyielding despair. We have, uh, David was wearing one of our, t we, uh, Redemption Church has all of life, all for Jesus t-shirts. This is our next t-shirt. I am built on a foundation of unyielding despair. I think we'll sell a lot of those. Okay, so you say, well, what about somebody more contemporary? I told you I've been reading a lot. There's this guy, Steven Pinker. He's a Harvard psychologist. A couple years ago, he wrote an essay titled, get the I like the title of this, The Stupidity of Dignity. It's the title of the essay. Has anybody read this essay, by the way? That's funny you would read it. <laughs> so essentially, here's what he says. If you believe in science, you have no rational argument for the existence of human rights or human dignity. Why? Because you're a good person? There's no scientific rationale for that. That's what he says. And by the way, he's not a Christian. He would reject God. John Gray, also at Harvard, I believe, uh, five years ago, he wrote a book called Straw Dogs that says essentially the same thing. And I ask again, where is the hope in this? And yet we love this stuff as human beings in the public sphere. We just, we, we jump on this. Here's what I find odd. It is, in fact, the authority of God that brings us hope. That's where true hope resides. It is the authority of God that actually brings us hope. Keller says, God or the universe? One loves and cares. The other one doesn't know the difference. Edwards puts it this way. The longing we all have that things ought not to be as they are and cannot be allowed to, main, to remain as they are is an eschatological longing that must be in the hands of God if we are to have legitimate hope. That's where our hope lies. In his truth, in his authority. And God's love is born of his authority. His authority came before his love, if you want to put it into a chronological sequence. And it was out of that authority that his love to share his son with us, to send his son, his good pleasure, sent his son to incarnate, to visit us, to serve us, and to ultimately to die for us. The Bible says that he who was rich in all things became poor for our sake so that we might be the righteousness of God. Science doesn't have an answer for that. That is where our hope resides. It resides in Christ. Let me pray, and Cody and the band's going to come and lead us into our time of response. Lord God, we thank you for that you are the one who has all authority, who has all truth, and because of that, you have given everything for us so that we might become rich in you.
so that we might have hope, so that we might have power. God, we thank you for that, and we just pray that you would humble us and allow us to submit to that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.